I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us, and the great favor to the house of Israel that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his chesed, his steadfast love. This is the word of the Lord. Rabbi Gunter Plout, in his commentary on this passage, reminds us that this is an appropriate lection for Shabbat that immediately precedes Rosh Hashanah. That is, if you were to go to Temple Israel or Congregation B'nai Amuna on the Friday night before Rosh Hashanah comes in the fall of each year, you would hear a passage read from Torah and you would hear this Haf Torah from the writing of the scroll of Isaiah. Recount the gracious deeds of the I am who I am. Remember all these works of his chesed, his steadfast, never-failing love. In 14 months, our Barton Clinton Gordy presenter will be Dr. Walter Brueggemann. He is known as one of the greatest of the Christian scholars of the Hebrew Scriptures. He retired just a couple of years ago. He has written numerous wonderful books on the Hebrew Scriptures. He has a two-volume commentary on the scroll of Isaiah. He is convinced that the scroll of Isaiah is the work of three different writers, that the first writer wrote the first 39 chapters. They are written in the 8th century when the Assyrians had amassed great amounts of land, encompass modern-day Syria plus part of modern-day Iraq, all of modern-day Lebanon, and swept southward, absolutely devastating the ten northern tribes. Isaiah was convinced that the same fate would befall the southern two tribes called Judah if they did not seriously repent and turn again to the ways of their Lord. 135 years later, the Babylonians became the dominant power. They took over the territories reigned over by the Assyrians, added territories to their east, and swept southward into Judah, destroyed the temple, destroyed the palace, tumbled down the walls of the city, burned the gates off its hinges, led all of the king's sons into his presence and killed them all. And once he had seen that all of his heirs were dead, they gouged out his eyes and marched him blind all the way to Babylon. That second portion of the scroll is written by a prophet in Babylon. The first prophet was saying, repent, repent, turn to the Lord. The second prophet says, comfort, comfort ye my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And then 50 years later, the Persians rose to be the dominant power in the Middle East. They conquered the Babylonians and told the Jews they could go home and pay heavy taxes to them. A third writer, writing from among those returned exiles in Jerusalem, sees a devastated countryside, a vulnerable, plundered city, a discouraged people who believed that the only good that's come to them came when Cyrus allowed them to be free. And this author will have nothing of that. If Cyrus has made any good come to them, it's because God was in charge of Cyrus, king of Persia. 
as God finally rules over every king in every country. Let's take a look at the text for today. Number one, to understand the brief passage I read with you, you need to read the whole 63rd chapter. Because it really is a drama being played out in this author's mind of a sentry standing at his post with a long spear when suddenly out of the darkness someone approaches and he asks, Who goes there? I can see your robe is stained with the juice of grapes as one who's been treading out the vintage. And the response It is I. It can be translated, it is I am. This is not grape juice. This is the blood of your enemies. I have trampled out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. That appears in the Battle Hymn of the Republic, right from this passage. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. It is he, it is he who is your God. Gail and I have had two opportunities to be in Russia. We have seen some of the magnificent artwork of the Russian Orthodox Church. One of the most famous icons was painted 600 years ago this year, 1410, by a fellow named Andrei Rublev. He was a monk and a painter. He painted his rendering of Genesis 18. You remember that story? God has approached this old man, Abram, with an old wife named, first of all, Sarai, and asked, would they like to have a son? Well, we've been trying forever. We're too old now. I can help you have a baby. Do what I tell you. Roll up your bed, pack up your tent, come with me. They went with him. No baby. Next year, no baby. Next year, no baby. Next year, no baby. One day in the deserts of Judea, three strangers approach these tents of Abraham and Sarah. Now, in the desert, it is most important that one be a good host. Will Abraham and Sarah be generous? Well, in fact, they are. They invite these three strangers to come into their tent. Please let us wash the dust from your feet. Please, do you have a moment? We will kill the fatted calf. Do you have a moment? We will bake bushels of wheat into bread. Andre Rublev, 600 years ago, painted these three. The only thing is that scholars have believed ever since he was painting the Trinity. He was saying, you know who visited Abraham and Sarah? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And they've tried to figure out which one is which. He didn't give the obvious things. One doesn't look older, one younger, one with wings like a dove. But one of my professors said, I think I know. Look at the figure on the left. I'm almost positive it's Jesus. Why? Look what he's wearing. Now, when you first look at the icon, they look very similar, these three. But this one has two colors. Were you here at 2 o'clock on Friday for the service of the bells? 
Hannah Hubner was Mary. You know what color dress she wore? Blue. At four o'clock and six o'clock, Sabrina was Mary. What color did she wear? Blue. If you go to the library after the service and look through the window at the beautiful Hummel crash scene, look at Mary. She's wearing blue. Because centuries ago, artists decided blue was the right color. The color for God's visitation. God has visited Mary. She is going to have a child. And from this point on, in all the art in history, religious art, Mary wears blue. This person on the left, blue, right around his neck, you can see blue. But the overrobe is dark brown. And my professor said that's the color of the earth, that God Almighty was making this baby come into being, but he was sending here to be dust of dust, ashes to ashes, like you and me. A man of the earth, like you and me. Who goes there? It is I am. Number two, you have to read back in the earlier part of the chapter, the year for my redeeming work had come. What is this prophet saying? Cyrus is not the one who made this happen. I made this happen. I am who I am. I made this happen for you. On Friday night at 11 o'clock, Dr. Kroll was our preacher. And he chose the lection appropriate for the day from the gospel. It was from Matthew's gospel. And the reading that used it was used ended, You shall name him Jesus, then you shall call him Emmanuel, God with us. Dr. Fred Craddock has written commentary on that beginning of the gospel according to St. Matthew. And in this commentary, he says, We call the Magi wise men. They were not wise, he said. What did they do? They got to Jerusalem, to the most powerful king in that part of the world, and asked, where's the king? Even before Machiavelli wrote his book, you should have known, you don't ask the king, where's the king? But Matthew is writing his gospel for a specific purpose, as did Mark as did Luke, as did John. Each is trying to write to a slightly different audience, readership, to help that community understand what God had done in Jesus Christ. And in Matthew's gospel, from start to finish, the question is, who is the king? Who is the king? Is it Herod the Great? He will die. But there came another Herod. Is it he? There would come another Herod. Is it he? So whether you call him Caesar, Kaiser, Pharaoh, or king, is it he? Or is it this child in a manger in Bethlehem? 
To whose kingdom do you want to belong? That's what Matthew's asking. To whose kingdom do you want to belong? You have to make a decision. Is it the way of all of these who make war, who take and take and take everything available? Or is it the one who gives and gives and gives and patiently waits and patiently waits for those whom he's created to finally get it right? Where's the king? Matthew expects you to answer that question, me to answer that question. Number three, the third important part of this reading, it seems to me, is a contradiction of one of the things you and I sometimes say. He has no hands but our hands. He has no feet but our feet. That's true to a point. But it is not true ultimately. God can do and will do. If we do not do our part, he can do in spite of us. Look at the wisdom of this ancient prophet. It is I, it is I am, mighty to save. I have trodden the winepress alone. No one was with me. I trod them in my anger, in my wrath, their juice spattering on my garments, staining my robes, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, but the year of my redeeming work had come. I looked, but there was no helper, so my own arm brought the victory. If we make ourselves available, if we say, Here am I, Lord, send me, and truly seek the guidance and direction of God, it will be granted. I often pray in meetings around the church where I'm asked to say an invocation, lead us, Lord, and we promise to follow. Show us where you want us to go. I promise we will follow. Even if we do not, he can do for himself. And finally will bring the ultimate victory in God's own time, in God's own way. Mary Henderson is a second-grade school teacher up in Iron Mountain, Michigan. My only sister was a second-grade teacher for nearly 30 years. She said second-graders are wonderful. They've learned not to cry when their mother or daddy leaves them in the morning, and they still think teachers are wonderful. Well, Mary Henderson says that the little school she teaches in Iron Mountain, Michigan, has a nursing home right down the street from the school. And so they decided to teach these second graders how important it is to give to somebody else to do something kind for somebody who cannot repay. How about making a Christmas card, each child for one of the residents of this small nursing home? So she said, we passed out the construction paper and all the children had crayons available to them, some magic markers, and they all started furiously at work. I told them just how many minutes we had, and then we had to all go quietly together, holding hands down to the nursing home. We'd sing a couple of Christmas carols, and we'd come back to school before their moms or dads came to pick them up. I watched, she said. I could see them drawing stars, Christmas trees, angels with wings, some tried to draw what they thought a manger looked like with a baby and straw. 
She said, I finally said, okay, got to pick them up, pick them up. I was gathering up all the cards. I came to one little girl in my class and saw that she had done something entirely different from all the others. She had folded her paper in half and painstakingly cut out a stocking. There was nothing on the outside. No stars, no trees, no angels, no manger, no baby. I said, what happened to you? And she said, I didn't have time. I'm sorry, I didn't have time. And the teacher said, well, we've got to go. So she said, I put hers on the very bottom and thought maybe we'd have enough, one for everybody without having to give out this one that had nothing on it. We got to the nursing home. Children sang. I said, we've got to hurry back to school now. And I handed all the cards to the supervisor there and said, please see that everyone has a card. Merry Christmas. We left. After Christmas, the supervisor called me and said, thank you for bringing the children. Our residents loved them. It was the highlight of their afternoon. Everybody got a card. I asked, Mary said, what about that last one? that had nothing on the outside. Did you have to use it? And she said, I used it. We have one man who is blind. He couldn't tell there was nothing on the outside. His hand traced around the shape and guessed, it's a stocking. I said, that's right. And then he opened it and asked me if there was anything inside. And I read painstakingly, a second grader had written, I'm making this just for you. Supervisor said, I think it was probably the best one we had. I'm making this just for you. God is saying to Judah, now God is saying through Christ Jesus to us Gentiles, I'm doing this for you. For you, this baby, for you, this son, I can do it by myself. I want you to help me. Will you help me get this done? Number four. Ah, now we can come to the part that I read with you. So I will recount. Remember what Rabbi Plout says. That's what's happening Sabbath night before Rosh Hashanah. Coming to the new year, the new year, 10 days then of introspection before the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. What good might I have done this year that I didn't get done? What harm did I do that I should not have, that I don't want to do next year? Finally culminating in Yom Kippur, oh God, will you move from the seat of justice to the seat of mercy? So hear this text, appropriate that Friday night before. I will recount, remember, the gracious deeds of the I am who I am, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. What does that mean? Be grateful. Be grateful. How much do you appreciate the attitude of somebody who's grateful compared to people who feel they're entitled? We see both kinds all the time. People who feel entitled, they don't pick up, they don't clean up, 
They don't straighten up. They wait for somebody else to do that. Grateful people pick up, straighten up, help. Glad to be alive. Glad to have a whole new day. Really believing that God has so loved the world, he's given his son Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting joy. Life, life, life forever. You know, Elizabeth Sherrill is one of my favorite, favorite devotional writers. I've been reading her work for years. She's in her 80s now. Elizabeth Sherrill did not begin as a Christian. I've told you that. She was not a Christian. Her family never went to church. She was not told all these wonderful stories in the Bible. She was graduated from college, journalism major. She met and married a young journalist. They were married in Geneva, Switzerland, by the way. Both of them were writing over in Europe. And they were married there and have been married now all these years, both of them in their mid-80s. She started writing, he writing. They got into their 30s. Children came into their life. Hmm, maybe we should help them with some kind of moral instruction. Where do we do that? Well, how about church? And so they tried a little church in their neighborhood. And they made no promises, but they went back the next Sunday and the next Sunday and the next Sunday and then finally professed faith, baptized, joined the church. A couple years later, Elizabeth said, she and her husband both still writing, Guidepost Magazine called, the one that Dr. Norman Vincent Peale founded, said, we're going to put out a whole year of devotionals called Daily Guidepost Elizabeth, we wondered if you might write a couple of these for us. Just write one page on some point in your life where you felt that God was intersecting your life. Okay, some point where you've been aware God was there. If you're willing to share that, maybe it'll help somebody else. She said, I couldn't think of any. I couldn't think of any. Nobody ever asked me to do that, to think in that way before, ever. I said, give me a day or two here. So she said, I started thinking, where have I been aware of God intersecting my life? Where? Gee, I remember one time she said, I was in an apple orchard. I was amazed at all these wonderful apple trees. And suddenly I saw an apple tree that had a big scar, gash, down across its trunk. And I turned to the fellow who owned the farm and I said, what happened to that tree? And he said, lightning struck it. I said, really? He said, yeah, I thought it'd die. We would have to cut it down. Look what it did. It healed. You can still see it, but look at all the apples. And she said, I have a scar or two, but I pray to this God I've come to know Maybe I'm making a few apples for somebody. Then I thought about a woman with whom I work. Didn't like her. Sort of hateful person. Short, curt, not nice. I didn't like her. Then one Sunday in our church, I heard the preacher say and felt deeply within my heart, I ought to do something nice for her. 
She didn't deserve anything nice, but hey, I should do something really nice for her. And so I did something really nice for her for no reason at all, except I wanted to do something really nice for her. And she cried. And she hugged me. And she became a very good friend. Maybe if I wrote that, she said, maybe somebody else could think of something. Well, she said, I handed them in. They said, thank you very much. I had about forgotten about it. A year later, they called me from Guidepost and said, hey, you know those devotions you wrote? Well, we've had several good responses. Could you write us a couple more? Oh, gee, I told you all the places I was ever aware God had come into my life. So I had to stop and think really hard. And I finally thought of two more. But when I handed them in, I decided I'm not going to be caught in this anymore. If they should call me next year, I'm going to be prepared. So I set myself up a manila folder and I started thinking, on Monday, i got to beware of where God is intersecting my life. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Sunday, Monday, Saturdays, all these days. Is God intersecting my life? Is God intersecting my life? Is, do I see the hand of God working in my life? The next fall, I had a manila folder full. They called me and said, Elizabeth, we've had so many wonderful responses to your devotionals. Could you do a dozen for us this year? And I said, is that all you need? 